Uh, like me, I am sure there are a few of you here today who are pretty excited that college football season is upon us. That was such a Presbyterian church response to that. Ah, yes, we are excited. Yeah. If you're watching on the live stream and you're not familiar with the Presbyterian church, we just got really, really excited right then. But we're in Austin. There's a university just a couple of blocks away from here that a lot of us have had involvement and are involved, and there's a, a lot of excitement and optimism, and there is every football season, but right now with a new coach, uh, with a new system, with uh, kind of everything that might mean, there's a lot of excitement and optimism. There are a few people here that didn't go to school uh, at the university here in Texas, and God still loves them, just to the east of us. I'm not calling any names. Uh, there's a lot of excitement as A&M is in the top 10 and basically every preseason poll you can find, there's even people saying this might be the year they qualify for the college football playoffs uh, for the first time. A lot of optimism there. There's one of our pastoral staff who's probably pretty excited that Auburn football is starting soon. I don't know what that was. The... Okay. But God loves her still. I'm even excited, guys. I'm even excited, and I'm a Georgia Tech football fan. And I'm excited for the start of the season. Uh, Georgia Tech, I didn't even go to school at Georgia Tech, but Georgia Tech, um, is, it's a labor of love to be a Georgia Tech fan. Uh, they are coming off consecutive three-win seasons. If you're unfamiliar with college football, there are 12 games in a regular season, so to win three games is a special, special talent. To win three games out of 12 two years in a row is really, really, really bad. <laughs> I heard of a, a talk show host this week in Atlanta who was answering some questions from Georgia Tech fans, a, kind of a call-in thing about the season. And one person called in and said, you know, is there, is, can we be optimistic that there might be more than three wins this year? And this guy had the greatest response. He goes, I think if you're a Georgia Tech two consecutive disappointing seasons of three wins each year, you can be optimistic there's a chance you'll be better. It's not that we're optimistic we're going to be better. You can be optimistic there's a chance you'll be better. And yet I heard that. And I'm like, I love it. I'm in. I, feel, I can feel a championship coming our way. There's just this optimism and excitement about college football season. So with all of that in mind, and you may have heard about this, but there was an analyst this week, a football analyst, who um, uh, drew some, some ire on, online by a tweet that he sent out this week. We're going to bring it up here on the screens. And I'm just going to let you read it. His name is Jarrett Bailey. He wrote, just for your weekly reminder not to refer to your favorite team as we or us. You don't play for them. Jarrett Bailey has had better weeks online than the week he had this week uh, in response to that tweet because there was a lot of passion in the response. Now, to be fair to Jarrett Bailey, uh, there is a logic in what he is saying, right? I don't play for Georgia Tech. Most of you do not play or have not played for the, whatever team you support, but we throw ourselves really deeply into it. And, you know, and that's not bad. Just question why that is, right? But what Jarrett Bailey's missing and the response he got from people was passionate because the reason that Georgia Tech is a we for me has nothing to do with whether I played for them or not. And probably is the same for you and the team that you might support. 
I didn't choose to be a Georgia Tech fan. Most people wouldn't do that if they had options of what to do. I was born into it. My dad went to Georgia Tech and was active there and uh, in the Alumni uh, Association and in his fraternity, Sigma Chi. Uh, there was, uh, my grandfather went there. My grandfather was uh, very active, actually served on the board of trustees for a while at Georgia Tech. We grew up going to multiple football games from when I was very little every year in downtown Atlanta at Bobby Dodd Stadium. Uh, we would go to multiple men's and women's basketball games in the winter and the spring. Georgia Tech sports were a part of my childhood. And so today in Austin, Texas, there's like two Georgia Tech games a year that make it on TV in this area, but I watch them. And when Georgia Tech goes charging out there to start the game in a half-empty stadium with a game against Clemson that we're going to lose by 52 points, <laughs> when they go out there following the Ramblin' Wreck, old Ford Model T, and the band is playing and people are singing the fight song, I get tears in my eyes and goosebumps because I can hear my grandfather's voice singing terribly loud and just playing terribly and it unlocks a part of who I am. That's why it's a we. That's why it's my team. Whether you're a sports fan or not, it's important to see that sports and other activities can awaken something in us, whether we play it or not, a passion and an excitement. And it tells us something spiritually that we need to be very aware of as people of faith. God created us to come alive when we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. We spend so much time on our individual lives and our individual little bubbles, but it's important to see that we are created to come alive when we become a part of something bigger than just our ourselves. And sports is just one way that we gain a glimpse of that. I want you to keep that in mind today as we engage our scripture passage this third week of our Rebuild series. It's actually the same passage of scripture we looked at last week, but we're going to look at it with a little bit of a different perspective today. It's Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. <clears throat> in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you're not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask you, send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen was also sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a date. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, we would hear your gospel, your good news today, and it would transform us all forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've started this Rebuild series, uh, we've talked in the last two weeks about the vision statement of this church. We're encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. 
We worked really hard to come up with that simple sentence that captures the values and the vision of this church. We didn't want a seven-sentence thing that just went in a file folder saying we had a vision. We wanted it to be captured in something every one of us could remember. We're encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. We talked about how it is that we become that kind of community. We tell you that the way we become that kind of encouraging community that has all of us living lives of purpose seven days a week, that we don't become that through the espousal of values or hearing lectures, but the way that we build and change our lives is through the building of habits, the building of behaviors, the building of patterns on a daily basis. And what we say is that when you look at the Bible of how people are formed, there's really three different biblical habits and behaviors. We think of them as three legs of a three-legged stool all of us needing to practice each and every one of them. We see this in the New Testament. We see Jesus doing this in his life. We see his disciples living this way. We see this in the Old Testament, and we see it here in the book of Nehemiah. For Nehemiah to understand God's call upon his life to rebuild his world and his own life, it starts with each of these habits. The first of these habits, the first behavior, the first leg of the three-legged stool is the habit of solitude, our spiritual life with God. We see how in Nehemiah, when he hears about the destruction of Jerusalem, a city he's never been to before, it says that he goes to God in prayer, not with a plan, not with a a, a strategy as to what to do, but just in prayer goes to God and says, God, this causes pain for me. This causes mourning for me. And for four months, he just holds that pain before God in prayer. We ask you to do the same thing as we come uh, and are still involved in, but, but in some ways trying to emerge from a global pandemic and all that that's meant. As we look at what's taking place in our city, in our world, even in our own lives today, to start in solitude ourselves and to hold out places of discontent before God, to hold out our disappointment, to hold out our places where we say, God, I thought it would be different than this, for you and I to do the same in prayer. And we're going to ask you to keep doing that because what we've said is that as we do that and as we continue to do that, that what we see in Nehemiah is that God doesn't give Nehemiah a plan, but he gives him a burden, a burden of something that's not right that sticks in Nehemiah's heart and mind and soul and he can't shake it. The second leg of the three-legged stool, the second habit we uh, uh, encourage one another in here at Covenant is the habit of community, living not as part of a crowd, but in community, in a, in a culture that's becoming increasingly isolated and lonely. What does it mean to have life-giving community, life-on-life community, in small groups and in Bible studies and in mentoring relationships that all of us need? We see the importance of this in Nehemiah when Nehemiah takes this burden. And in the passage we read today uh, and we looked at last week, says to the king, uh, when the king says, why are you so sad? That, that Nehemiah and the king have some sort of friendship there. The king knows that Nehemiah is down just from his way he walks into the room. And in that, Nehemiah shares his burden with the king for the destruction of Jerusalem. And the king gives permission to Nehemiah to go and to rebuild the walls of the city. And what we said is we need the kind of community like that. That you might have a sense of what you want to do with your life, but the way we discern and test the spirits, the way we know God's call and God's vision for us is to figure it out in community. We need to be in community. We need to be in these pockets of community where we're sharing our burdens, our sense of things, of what's sticking in our mind and soul, and that hearing people say, yeah, I see this call upon you. I encourage you in this, or I want to kind of challenge you in this, or I wonder about if that's really the right time for you to take these steps. We don't believe in spiritual lone rangers. We believe in people who discern and are sent by community. 
And so we want to have on-ramps for every single person of every age and stage of life to be able to enter into community. And we want to continue to help you with that. But the third leg of the three-legged stool, the third habit or behavior we talk about is the building the habit of service. Solitude, community, and service. I want you to see here that Nehemiah's call is different from probably everything else King Artaxerxes uh, deals with every day. I mean, the king has got to, it's got to be an exhausting job, right? So much of your time is deciding disputes between people, all of whom are looking out for their own interests, all of whom are looking out for the interests of uh, their legacies and what will be behind them, all of whom want something from you, all of whom are trying to get ahead and you're trying to navigate all this. And then all of a sudden Nehemiah comes and Nehemiah's request is to leave the court of King Artaxerxes, to leave a very lush, comfortable life in Babylon and to return to Jerusalem to be a part of the very difficult work of rebuilding a city that is in ruins. Everything about Nehemiah's call is seeing that there is uh, uh, pain and need in the world around us. And God's call to rebuild is bigger than just Nehemiah building his own individual platform and life. There's something in us that comes alive when we become a part of something bigger than ourselves. Nehemiah uh, is, shows us, and we need to be reminded that when we talk about the, the half service, we're not talking about charity work. We're not talking about getting volunteer hours. See, that's the way of thinking that like the first two behaviors, uh, solitude and community, those fill us up, and then service, we go empty ourselves up and get depleted, and then I have to go back and, and get filled up again. That's the wrong way to think about this. This is a spiritual discipline. It's as much of a spiritual discipline as prayer. It's as much of a spiritual discipline as being in a small group is seeing where there is need and pain and hurt and marginalization and injustice in the world and moving to those places to be a part of building up God's shalom. And when you see people who do this, when you see people who do it as a spiritual discipline, the reason we know it fills us up and doesn't just empty us is these people come alive. We become alive when we become a part of something bigger than ourselves. There's never been anyone I've talked to that's given up their time to volunteer on a weekend and to serve people where they see need and came away from that time going, I don't know, I, I just wish I had binged out on Netflix instead. Nobody does that. Because it's not just that you help somebody else, but something comes alive in you. I don't know anybody that gave their money so that children could have food that didn't have food or have access to medicine who didn't have access to medicine who when they saw the impact of their financial generosity said, I just wish I had bought myself nicer stuff. That was kind of a waste. Nobody does that because when we become a part of a story bigger than ourselves, it's not just other people that are healed. Something comes alive in us. It's a spiritual discipline. All of us need to practice. And so like we did last week with community, like we did the week before with solitude, with this final leg of the three-legged stool, we have created very clear on-ramps through this community life guide where you and those whom you love can come get involved in service as a spiritual discipline. One of the wonderful ways we do this is through the work of our mission committee. If you've been here for a while, you know that our, our emphasis on mission has grown uh, that committee and the scope of that committee, whether it's uh, working with refugees, whether it's working with uh, the homeless, whether it's medical debt forgiveness. I am so grateful for the leadership uh, the amazing leadership of Whitney Bell, our director of mission, of uh, the amazing leadership of our mission committee and what the work that they have helped us to imagine doing. They have helped us with these on-ramps. Did you know, for example, yesterday, this is just yesterday, on our campus, 
we opened up and had worked with two different of our mission partners here in the city to bring uh, homeless women and men who wanted to come to our campus. While they were here on our campus, we had lots of volunteers that were here that helped them uh, to get a shower, that helped them to get haircuts, uh, that helped them by uh, getting in touch with resources to break cycles of poverty and the underlying causes of homelessness that were there. But they also had access to COVID-19 vaccines, anyone that wanted to take it. And there were many people that were here and 18 individuals were vaccinated yesterday who, had, who didn't know where to go and to get access to that. That's just taking place yesterday. And I heard, they called it shots and showers. I heard uh, from several different people in our church who volunteered yesterday. And these are people with families, with jobs that are busy, that gave up a Saturday on a very hot day for this. And I heard from several of them and not one of them said that was a waste of time. Every one of them was going, this was amazing for me to be a part of. There is something that you are designed to come alive when you become a part of something bigger than yourself. There are on-ramps for you to take with the amazing people in our mission team to get involved. All of us need to be practicing this. But we also, in recent years, as you may know, have been working to think, how else can we serve the city? Not to dig away from the emphasis on missions, but what are other ways that we don't just sort of see one uh, kind of paradigm of this, but we think about what else this could look like? We've had a lot of people working on this. We've had our session that spent a retreat thinking about what are the needs of the city and how can we think differently about how we respond. We've had two different iterations of a task force that session appointed of really creative entrepreneurial people thinking about how we could do something different. And about a year ago, we announced what session had passed in this. The passage of a new initiative here at Covenant called the Love Letter Fund. Now, the Love Letter Fund, uh, and I think the basic way I would, I would say what makes this work unique and different than anything else I know that is taking place anywhere in the country, is that the Love Letter Fund um, works on a model of, of, of a distributed model of kind of mission and discipleship. Now, what do I mean by that? When you think about how our traditional missions works, and again, this is a good thing. It works well. We're going to keep emphasizing it is that it works in a centralized way where people come join a committee, they have interest in that, they uh, have people come and, and, and go to the committee to get resources and other things, but it's kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, contained and led by a central group. What the Love Letter Fund said is, what if we all of a sudden looked at the thousands of people in the covenant orbit and said, rather than saying you need to come serve here, we went out where you live, work, and play and said, how can we support you? to live out our vision statement? How can we put resources for you to think creatively about what it means to be a Christian that works at Apple? About what it means to be a Christian who's a teacher? What it means to be a Christian who's an attorney? What it means to be a Christian who is a stay-at-home dad? What it means to be a Christian who serves uh, on the PTA? What it means to be a person of faith? Because what we do naturally, and think about this, we live very kind of bifurcated lives right? This is my faith life. When I'm with my small group or church, what we talk about at work or when I'm with my friends from college, this is the stuff we do and think about and talk like. And we just have gotten real comfortable with kind of two separate streams. What we've said is what if in our vision statement, we live an integrated life where God has you seven days a week where you are for purpose. And how do we help you have the big idea of what to come next? Not centralized, but distributed. So, this was passed by session, and what we said is, is it like, is it kind of mission? Well, it's kind of mission because we want to serve in the city. Is it discipleship? It's kind of discipleship because it's encountering you to come up with what God wants you to do in your formation. 
It's kind of a hybrid of both. It doesn't fit neatly in any one category here. And the way that you could get involved, we told you last October, was in two ways. Number one, we said we want to encourage you to start thinking about how to live out our vision statement. Think creative, dream about it, pray about it. And if you'd like to apply for funding and for human resources, mentoring from the Love Letter Fund, send us an application by this date. You could also sign up to be a mentor of entrepreneurs. It's like, I don't, you know, uh, I don't really know what this is, but if I can help somebody because I'm a marketing person, because I'm a lawyer, I'll sign up and I'll be involved if I can help these dreamers. That's what we announced next fall. Just to get us on the same page, we're going to show a video here that we have on our website of the Love Letter Fund just kind of outlines exactly where we are and what this is. What is church? Is it the four walls of the sanctuary? Is it worship on a Sunday morning? Is it a warm cup of coffee and a greeting at the door? At Covenant, we are called to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. We're called beyond our campus and our small groups and into the city we love to represent a Jesus who knows no boundaries. We are called to live differently and love radically. We're called to make an impact. In order to meet the changing needs of the world around us, we need to look beyond what has worked in the past and into what is possible. The Love Letter Fund is an opportunity to show up for our city in ways we'd never imagined before. Through this initiative, we aim to partner with dreamers, innovators, and entrepreneurs to foster positive social change in the city of Austin. We'll meet these changemakers where they are and guide them in their journey through spiritual formation, coaching, professional support, and resource assistance. We believe that by investing in these individuals, we will bring hope, healing, and opportunity for generations to come. This impact will not be possible without your help. We need your expertise to help guide our changemakers and build their dreams. We need an arsenal of marketers, attorneys, teachers, sales, and partners in prayer. Regardless of your vocation, chances are there will be a need for your support. Please join us in this mission to be a love letter to Austin. So we threw this out last October. And it was one of the scariest things I've ever done because people were like, I don't quite understand it. I'm like, I don't, we're trying to build something here that doesn't exist. And, and so we said, well, who wants to sign up to be a mentor? And we had many of you that responded going, I don't quite know what this is, but if I can help uh, through my skills, I'm willing to give it a try and do it. And we said, well, do any of you want to apply for this? And we had 17 dreamers in this church, 17 different individuals or groups who reached out to us with an application that they filled out and said, I don't know if this is what you're looking for. But if it is, this is what my, God might be putting on my heart. And we went through them, and they were amazing. We had a committee of entrepreneurs here that, that went through this and, and looked at them. And there were some that fit better in the exact kind of uh, parameters of the Love Letter Fund than others. But there are others who were like, even if it didn't fit exactly in, they are pursuing it anyway. God has put something on their heart of how they're supposed to live. And we are applauding that and, and fanning the flames of it. But there were a few that fit in exactly as we saw with what the Love Letter Fund was about. So last April, we were set to announce the first of several different initiatives that we were going to be funding. And the person we were going to be funding was a member of our church named Shireen Keshevarez. There's a picture of her here from her baptism here at Covenant several years ago. Uh, Shireen uh, is somebody who is a member, was a member of this church. She was a refugee from Iran 
who with her three children escaped persecution and fled through the desert for several days, uh, was able to come to the States as a refugee, was connected here with Covenant through our refugee ministry. She started attending our church. She got baptized at our church as a Christian. And she started a here that was catering to with Middle Eastern food that had grown and grown. This woman was not only a new believer and an amazing Christian with a great story, she was a very successful businesswoman, both in Iran and here. But she needed to expand this company. And so she came to us and said, I would like to expand this company, but the way I want it to meet a social need is I don't just want to hire the cheapest labor in this uh, restaurant that I, in, as the catering business expands, but I want to specifically hire other refugee women like me many of whom weren't able to work in their country of origin. And they will come here and they will get trained in the catering and restaurant business so that they will have skills to live in Austin or anywhere else in the world as a contributing, flourishing person in society. And her plan was amazing and we loved it. And we were going to announce it last April to you all. And yet, if you remember a couple of days beforehand, Shireen was diagnosed with an illness. It was a reoccurrence of cancer. Unfortunately, it had spread throughout her body. And this past summer, Shireen passed away. You may have seen the blog post that was written. It's one of the most read posts that we put on our website. If not, I encourage you to go find it. This is a woman with an amazing story. And it's important today that we name her and the story that the Love Letter Fund was going to be a part of. But as we mourn Shireen, there were others in the pipeline that we knew we were going to be working. And today, it is my excitement to announce the next of the Love Letter Fund recipients who are already up and going. The group that we have helped to get started is called the Margin Institute. And I want to tell you very quickly about how they came into being as well as what they do. The Margin Institute got started when a member of this church, and some of you may uh, know him, Dan Michael, a longtime member who is in finance and in accounting. Uh, his wife, Michelle, sings in the choir. Uh, she, uh, Dan had heard about this, and he was really starting to wonder, like, what does my faith have to do with my, my finances and my vocation, and how do I live this integrated life? He heard about the Love Letter Fund and, and what that might mean, and like, what would that mean for someone like him and his industry? Uh, he had enough of a thought about it that he went to a small group, and in his small group he said, you know, I'm just kind of wondering about this, and another member of his small group, Dan Pucci, who's a newer member of our church, uh, said, you know, I've been kind of thinking about this, and Dan, comes from a Dan Pucci comes from a business and marketing background, he said, if I can use my skills to kind of help flesh this out and what it might be, uh, maybe we could something kind of partner on this together. And then a third person in the small group said, you know, I know of a young tech vice president here in this church who's a brand new member here named Matt. Matt McMitchin. Matt has some interest and has talked about this and works in, in, in technology and finance. What if I connected you with him? So Dan Michael and Dan Pucci and Matt McMitchin all came together and started talking about this thing. And they said, we think that God might want us to use our skills by using microloans. Microloans that have been used around the world, small loans to help people get started. And they started out by saying, we're just going to help underserved people in Austin. But as they talked and as they started learning about microloans and seeing how uh, that happened, they realized that the most underserved but sometimes the most successful places to give these loans out are to refugees. And so they honed that in and said that we're going to start the Margin Institute to lift up and help refugees start businesses through microloans. They have the skills and training to do it. They pitched the idea to the Love Letter Fund and we said this is something that we want to get involved with, that this is something that we want to do. You see, the power of this distributed model is this. There is not a lifelong church employee that can run this. I can't run this. I don't know how this works. I don't have the training. No one on our staff does. 
But these folks have the training to put in their experience to put this into action. So we just like let them go and say, we're behind you in this. They are in the midst of running the first round of applications uh, for, for funding and for loans from refugees here in Austin. They have heard from people from Cuba, from Myanmar, from uh, Afghanistan, from Honduras, and other places who are pitching them. Successful people that often had businesses in their country of origin and just need some help stuff started. And these folks, the Margin Institute, is going to find ways to make that happen, to lift up individuals, to lift up families, to lift up entire neighborhoods so that they can be a part of the flourishing of this city. It's an amazing thing that every one of us is a part of because this church is making it possible. And I want to wrap this up. I want to wrap this up as I did last week because, and, I, and I'm going to tell you now how I wrap this up. I did not plan this five months ago. I promise you I didn't plan this. But I want you to hear where we are in this series. Because the journey that these folks have been on with the Margin Institute mirrors Nehemiah exactly. And I promise you I didn't plan it this way. They started with a burden. They started by looking at what does God want to do in my life and how do I kind of solve this bifurcated, here's my work, here's my faith kind of world. They started in prayer of naming that on themselves to God and holding that out and saying, I can't shake this. I've got a burden that I can't shake. I don't have a plan, but I've got a burden. And then what did they do next? They went to their small group. And in small group, in community, they started talking about it. And someone said, well, I can help out with this or I'm interested in this. And, and all of a sudden, a burden started getting refined into a vision and into a plan. And now they are out there seeking to serve in areas of needs. And if you want to know if... The acts of service are a spiritual thing that fill us up. We become alive when we become a part of a story bigger than ourselves. You talk to these guys because they have an excitement and a passion and a sense of call about what God is doing them. And they are like charging out there to use their skills to make a difference. And it is an inspiring thing for me just to watch and learn from. And that's the journey I'm asking all of you to go on. I'm asking you to consider in solitude to keep holding out our places of pain to God, to keep trusting people and finding parts of community where that burden can be refined towards a vision and a plan and to see that that plan is going to be about rebuilding something that is bigger than just our own individual little pockets of life. Because when we step into a story bigger than ourselves, we come alive. There are on-ramps for you to participate in future rounds of the Lord, in mission projects here at this church. Come join us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us and that you would continue to encourage us all in this journey we are on. We lift this prayer up in Christ's name. Amen.